This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books and Indian Religions podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. More importantly, I have the triple delight today of speaking uh, with Dr. Yigla Bronner of um, Hebrew University of Jerusalem and Dr. Charles Hallisey of Harvard Divinity School. Uh, they are co-editors of a brand new open access publication. The, the link is in the podcast notes called Sensitive Reading, The Pleasures of South Asian Literature and Translation. And this um, publication... Uh, um, um, uh, features uh, the 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 lovely, uh, brilliant uh, translations of David Schulman, who is also joining us today, um, and he is Professor Emeritus at Hebrew University of Jerusalem. So, gentlemen, welcome uh, to the podcast. Thank you. Well, I think uh, perhaps um, perhaps we should start with David, since this is all you're doing uh, <laughs> initially. Could you tell us a little bit about, I mean, there's so much. We uh, I could easily feature a, a podcast called The Conversation with David Schulman, and we may one day. But could you tell us a little bit about your process translating or your relationship to translating texts? Uh, yeah, I'll be happy to. I should say that my role in this particular volume was a kind of... Um, uh, crypto one, that is, I was asked to provide translations for 15, about 15 texts, and then um, the two editors took it wherever they wanted to take it and invited people to give their responses. We can maybe talk about that later. But in terms of uh, translation, I I have no theory of translation. In fact, I have a kind of aversion to reading prefaces in which the translator explains at length all the agonies that he or she has gone through in the course of translating. I do think that one has to somehow find some um, um, some way to stay very close to the original without being overly literal so that actually one is translating into, in, in our case, into you know, modern, clean, and hopefully beautiful English. Um, I've done rather a lot of it, and I've worked with uh, other translators as well, with Yigal and with Belcheru um, Narayanarao and others. Yeah, we I had um, Archana Vinkitesan on the podcast some time ago to talk about her work, and, and you came up in passing, I believe it was on that podcast, and the the the... the the role of translation is so much more than communicating the semantic sense or the grammar, the, the, the somehow um, 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 digesting and ingesting the the the, the rasa, the, the the deep familiar sense, and somehow mm-hmm. being able to render that in in a different language. And um, I, I'll say, uh, I probably can speak for many in our field. Um, your translations are quite beautiful and quite resonant in English, and they they really are a pleasure to read. Thanks, so. Un- Unsurprising that they, unsurprising that they that that our editors who are the masterminds of this said to you, go translate some stuff and then we'll do something with it. Um, so now, now to our to our fearless editors, what did you do with these translations for this volume? You go. 
Well, I think you should start, Charlie. <laughs> uh, we had the idea that one of the things that, let's say, the world needed was some help on how to read uh, translations and how to read them in a way that they could be uh, enjoyed, the way that we would read anything uh, for the sake of enjoyment and not just for kind of instrumental uh, purpose of finding out things. Uh, learning about something that you know, learning is something that is it's like distant from you that that's a good uh, worthy goal but the idea of just reading translations in which you enjoy them and which you are kind of spoken to by them in which you taste something that is like fresh and unfamiliar to you we thought that in a in a time when it's you know a, a boom time for translations you have the murti uh, classical library of india other translations you know that are coming out uh, from all, all a variety of uh, sources that people really don't know how to kind of approach them and engage them if they're not already an expert in the in the the literature that's being translated. So that was say one of the kind of grounding uh, uh, purposes of the volume. And what happened uh, for a variety of reasons is that we wanted to have like translations that could convey something of pleasure. And so Yigal and I went to David and asked him, can you translate some of your favorites? And in that, what we would say, oh, his own pleasure in the text would be carried in the translations as well. And that there would be some sense of uh, not just picking any translation, but someone offering, this is something that you know, uh, I have loved, that has given me pleasure, that I've returned to. And that to have that quality in the translation uh, would be an unusual thing. And I myself think that it really comes across in all of the things that David selected, even if you know, at least I was kind of stunned by the range of languages that uh, uh, David started to offer. You know that uh, I could say, all right, I knew I was expecting Telugu, I was expecting Tamil, I was expecting Sanskrit, but Persian. Like, oh, please. And uh, so that uh, that was a quality as well. Just the pleasure of watching someone kind of keep on wanting to you know, share things that uh, had given him enjoyment in all sorts of ways. Such a timely volume. Um, and it just so happens that um, my object of study is, is narrative, Sanskrit narrative texts primarily in I was just in conversation with uh, a colleague of the day and, and said that um, however brilliant a scholar of narrative is, um, it really shines through when they're also a lover of narrative, when they also understand narrative, um, not just as an object of intellectual study, but of relishing. When, 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 when one is, one, in many ways, one almost needs to be a storyteller as well as an academic to, 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 to really study story um so so you mentioned in passing that okay well we need a means whereby folks who aren't specialists can engage texts someone say a bit more about that so who can engage these texts well just before that i, I want to add a, a point about uh, what charlie just said that this is a this is an important moment or you said it's a timely intervention 
there are like two things that we need we need to mention. First, uh, like we we're not used to having many uh, translations from from South Asia from any any kind of languages, and and the translations the old translations that we have are are really how to put it generously they they're. They're not, they don't come across, when you read some of them, you don't know why they were translated, what's so great about them, either because they're, you know, written in very old style English, or because they're just after the accuracy of the meaning, and, and they don't come across as, as poetry or narrative literature or or novels or what they're meant to be. So, so I think, I think uh, uh, that, that, uh, has left some readers disappointed and others uninterested. And now that we have this new reasonable wave of, of sometimes very good translations of South Asian texts, pe people don't have the tools to, to, to read them and, and understand them, but also, as Charlie said, to enjoy them. Mm -hmm. And I think, therefore, what we had in mind were various readerships, uh, 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 just like we have various kinds of uh, uh, responders, we'll get to that, I guess, in a second, uh, we were thinking of people with no exposure, zero exposure to South Asian literature of any sort, pre-modern or modern in any language, as well as people who have some exposure or college students or people who are in our field, you know, and, and, uh, uh, and, and, uh, and need to reconnect, as you said. We, we, I would even state what you said. I, I would restate it. I think we have to be first storytellers and then academics. And and I think, uh, I think we we tried our we tried our hand here at being first storytellers and and appealing to to the broadest possible uh, uh, audience. Oh well, you said it for the record, but I, <laughs> I wholeheartedly agree. <laughs> <laughs> I just wasn't wanting to step on too many intellectual toes, but no, it's it's very true to to really study story and understand a story world. One has to be able to grok story in their own native tongue by by temperament. Uh, I feel, um, and so uh, you uh, so there are different sorts of readers, and that you sort of ascribe proximity to these texts. Um, which I think is a, a fascinating um, um, a methodological enterprise. You know, what sorts of readers do you include in the book? But one of the things that we did was that we conceptualized, you know, in spatial terms, something that we called a near reader, and then something that we called a far reader. And so those uh, categories are pretty loose, but basically the near reader was someone who knew something about the literature that the translation was uh, you know, coming from. Uh, and that could provide some information about protocols of how to read, of things to pay attention to. Uh, things that, you know, someone who was kind of uh, coming to, say, a, a Tamil poem or a Sanskrit poem for the first time, what they might uh, kind of pay attention to, to increase their pleasure. The far readers were, you know, in the ideal sense, someone who was like the anticipated reader who knew nothing and was just picking up the uh, book 
you know, way that I've picked up lots of books in bookstores. I like the cover. Uh, you know, I liked something about, you know, uh, the, the title or, you know, say, oh, there's a new book by David Shulman, uh, uh, you know, but some idiosyncratic, uh, non-informed way of picking up the book and opening it up at random and starting to read. And so we had for each of the selections that are translation. Like two, at least it doesn't work out exactly this way in all the cases, but the basic model was a near reader and a far reader. Uh, and that the combination would give some models of how to engage the text in, in different kinds of ways. Yigal and I speak about this in the introduction. One of the great pleasures for us of putting the book together was the... Uh, the kind of the skill of the far readers of finding an entryway in mm -hmm. uh, and how often they kind of modeled that they had to struggle. Uh, and that, I think, is an important contribution of for people trying to figure out, you know, how can I enjoy things? And it's like an encouragement to people that you pick it up and you say, I don't like this. Uh, and then just to go on and say, but if I stick with it, I may find something that's the way in for me that then uh, opens up kind of vistas that for the for the near readers may not have ever been anticipated in which you say, oh, this is it's really there. It's in the, the text that's being translated. But because you're coming at it from the angle that you are idiosyncratic as it may be, it opens up something that really is great and really exciting, really pleasurable. And, and so that way in which some of the uh, far readers just open up very frankly saying, you know, I really struggled here. <laughs> I didn't like this. Uh, that I don't know what to say. That that I thought is like one of the great models of oh, what's the way into pleasure? allowing yourself to stick with something that kind of puts you off at first. One of the core sort of guiding principles, perhaps, uh, the, the, of uh, the introduction, and I feel the enterprise is, you stated fairly overtly, as I recall in the introduction, is this super important phenomenon in all things indic <laughs> of both and, and perhaps even all things narrative of the preservation of paradox. And it's not this is the right way, this is not the right way, this is the preferred way, this is how we should read it, experts should read it, lay folks should read it, it's now, the, the, you know, could you say a bit about this both-and notion that you talk about? Go ahead, you go. Both-and, I guess, implies that there's a certain elastic range of experience, and the experience may have um, conflictual or contradictory elements in it, and um in fact, that's a theme uh, in in uh, a lot of South Asian literature. What to do with impulses that are somehow at odds with one another, but both intrinsic to the person and the sensibility. All right, I also wanted to say that um, I'm happy that the conversation so far has focused repeatedly on the notion of pleasure, because... Um, you know that first of all, that's a that's a, an element of the South Asian aesthetic theory. There's an unabashed uh, delight in delight itself, in pleasure. That is one of the goals of aesthetic experience: is giving pleasure. 
Uh, it's funny how it, one has to make an effort in the Western world to actually proclaim pleasure <laughs> as a worthy goal of reading a book or reading a poem or something like that. There's a kind of drift into some kind of moralistic or didactic uh, element. One's supposed to learn something. What is the message? What is the meaning? What is the, you know, the meaning of this particular fable or story or something like that? And uh, uh, although South Asian aesthetics allows for other goals as well, the idea that pleasure is a fundamental, maybe the fundamental impulse, I think that's a great contribution of uh, South South Asian Sanskrit and other um, aesthetic theory. You know, many a colleague will have reading that they do for pleasure um, and then reading that they do for work. Yeah. Scho scholarship, um, um, the salt mines of Sanskrit grammar, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And, and so what to do when your your tapas has to do with works of pleasure. I mean, so, so there's this, you know, there's this, we touch on this so many times on this podcast, or at least I do in the back of my brain and perhaps on the tip of my tongue, this, this, um, this um, collapsing of opposites of this integrating of opposed thrusts, right? So, so, so the, the intellectual impulse to discern and say, it's this or it's this or it's that, or it's this to, to demarcate, that's so crucial for what we do, but folding into it, the very mode of narrative itself, which is to say, no, it's this and it's this and it's this and it's all of the above and none of the above. And that is the power of narrative. Um, without question, if your introduction was available in, uh, let's say, 2014, when I was dissertating, it would have been a cornerstone of talking a bit more about what I'd internalized in terms of how to read narrative, or at least my particular um, MO with narrative. And it's it's so timely that this podcast is on my radar currently because I've completed a new translation of the Devi Mahatmya. For years, I didn't know why anybody would want a new one because Coburn's is is good. It's solid. It's it's you know it's fairly accessible. Um, but um, um, request after request came, so I just completed one, and I was fortunate enough that Tom Coburn um, uh, wrote a forward to it, and I have to do this introduction. <laughs> <laughs> where I lay out, what am I doing in this text? And why do we need a new translation? And it occurs to me, really, the, the difference in this translation, the very purpose is, how do, how do the words sound in English? You know, what's the cadence? What's the rhythm? What's the pitch? What's the meter? What's the flow? Can we emulate the power of the Stotra in English or not? And um, I think so much of what I had just sort of instinctively done, you, you really articulate in this work in a, in a variety of ways enough from me, more from you. Let's hear about some of these readers near and far. Let, let, me, let, me, say, let me say something about the kind of variety of selections uh, of passages that are the basis before we, we move into the responses. Because as Charlie said, we came to David with, with, a, with one condition, which is, he must choose what he wants and what he likes, and 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 it's it's a, it comes back to the kind of both end thing because it it's it's such an amazing variety we have in our first unit we have um, uh, translations of different parts of the story of uh, Nala and Damayanti uh, from Sanskrit uh, Tamil and Malayalam uh, then. We have uh, modern or early modern uh, stuff in the second unit with the 
translation of uh, the story of the four, the section of the story of the four dervishes from Telugu and Touch, the modern story by Aburi Chayadevi and a street pump in Anantapuram and other uh, other poems by the by the poet Smile Ismail and 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 then we have uh, you know Sangam poems uh, we have two selections that David curated that are not translations one is a, a piece of uh, one is as a, a piece of art a photo uh, from Kanchipuram, from uh, from the Varadaraja Temple, and another are two musical pieces for which we also have responses. He translated the, the musical pieces, but the the, the kirtanas. But there, you you can listen to if you click on the link in the in the open access book, you can listen to them. Uh, there's a Persian Ghazal there. There, I mean, it's. I don't want to read the whole table of contents, but I think we. I think the read the listeners should get a, a kind of an impression of the of the selections that that David made. That are kind of. They're not pretending to be a kind of a, everything about South Asia from A to Z of any in any way, but they're kind of a, 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 a special selection or menu for enjoying a, a taste a tasting menu from well, it's, this. A, it's an Indian buffet of the dishes David most loves <laughs> <laughs> it's, 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 it's not necessarily a cross-section of a particular empire's uh, culinary achievement uh, it's just oh you know these are dishes I love <laughs> that's what it is um now that you've given us a, a sense of the spread maybe we could talk a little bit about um exemplifying the sort of near versus far reading. So and also we, at your convenience, we could also touch on the actual texts uh, in either order. So maybe maybe we prepared a, a small sample from the, the latter part of the book where we have a, a Sangam poem that David translation that is from the classical Tamil tradition. And then we can read you bits uh, from from our near and far readers' responses to these to the to this short stanza. Mm -hmm. So David, maybe you should start. Okay. Um, so this is a poem from the anthology called Natrinae. Uh, it's a relatively short poem. Uh, I'm tempted to read a few lines of the Tamil just to so you can hear it. I'll do please, that. please okay. do. Um, yeah, so let me begin by doing that, and then I'll give a very brief introduction to the context. This is uh, Natrinai 308, and it sounds like this, since you mentioned the importance of the sound element, which is actually, in, to my mind, usually the most dominant thing that one wants to try to reach. So, Selavirai Vutra Aravam Potri, Madarerungan Panivara Ayirayam Tat Karayabum Nanina Varuvol Vendamayin Men Melabande Vinavalum Tahitalum Selalahi Verikamal Nurumadmudi Tayanga Nalvina Poriari Pava Ilkadangi Meridanina in the Agam Adaindole Adekande, Irman Shegai, Nirparu Pasungalam, Perumarai Peyatket, Tangem, Porun Mali Nenjam, Punande Vandandre. Uh, 
I was only going to read a few lines, but because um, old Tamil poems, usually they tend to be a single sentence. <laughs> and it's kind of hard to stop in the middle. Um, so here's a, it's a love poem. And uh, the context is, uh, is as follows. Very often in the uh, Tamil love poems, Aham poetry, uh, the two lovers, uh, there comes a moment when these two lovers, they've already consummated their love, although they, they may not yet be married. Um, comes a moment where the young man says, uh, uh, I'm going away for a while, maybe a long time. I'm going to seek my fortune. Goodbye. <laughs> and uh, that's a moment of very, very intense, uh, what is called piridal separation, which is a major theme in the poetry in any case. So here we have a poem which deals with that terrible critical moment of separation and there's a little surprise built into it at the end okay so i'll read the translation the poem is by somebody called she heard the bustle of leaving cold tears came to her eyes dark with mascara like dew on flowers when i called her she came shyly reluctant very slowly she didn't ask me anything or try to stop me but like a finely painted doll smudged coming unstuck her fragrant hair glistening she was shaken lost in thought and then she sank onto my chest and my heart still thinking about money sighed and like an unbaked clay pot drenched by rain, took her in and was happy. Mm, beautiful. So, so just to, to calm the, the fear that may have arisen in the, in the potential readers of the volume when David read the Tamil, that does not exist in, in our volume. It's only translations and, and responses to them. And the... And this particular translation, it's taken from a unit where we give uh, his translations of three such poems with a very short introduction of introductory note of the sort that David just gave. And then we have two responses. And the first response comes from Jennifer Clare, who is an amazing scholar of Tamil literature, especially from, from this period onward. And I'll just read you one passage from Jennifer's response to this poem. The poem begins with the, quote, bustle of leaving, end of quote. That threshold moment of departure in between presence and separation. The next few lines depict the heroine's physical response to this moment. The changes brought about to her body and mind are both transformative and revelatory. She is changed by her knowledge of the new emotional landscape she has already begun to inhabit, but the bleakness of this landscape, identified as wasteland by the tradition, is offset by the luminosity of her love that this moment reveals. She becomes smudged, unstuck, shaken, as the lines around her blur, and who she is becomes unrecognizable. Similarly, the hero, whose heart was, quote, still thinking of money, end of quote, is transformed by the power of, his, of this love and becomes undone, melting, quote, like an unbaked clay pot drenched in rain, 
a state that allows him to take her in and be happy. This is the powerful beauty of the liminal state of relationship expressed by the Aham poems. We as readers, like the lovers, feel the intensity of this moment precisely because of the imminent separation, the undoing of the hero's heart that is the source of such poignant joy in this poem will condemn him. Sorry, the undoing of the hero's heart that is the source of such poignant joy in this poem will condemn him to an even more awful exile. This experience is not narrated here, but as we know from the hero of Purana's poem, it will be one of great pain. So this is just to give you an example of the kind of close reading that a near reader does for our readers of Shulman's translations of this beautiful Sangam poem and kind of helps them with understanding how to read and enjoy this, this form of literature. Let me speak a little bit about the far reader of the same poem and uh, just to introduce uh, Chirin, who is a very notable uh, Sri Lankan Canadian poet and that he is both a witness to and a victim of the long civil and genocidal war in Sri Lanka that took place in the uh, 80s, 90s, and uh, early 2000s. Uh, one of the things is to say oh, that Chirin's response as a far reader uh, is a testimony to some something that another aspect of the both end that you referred to before, Raj, and that what he's showing is that this poem from long ago in uh, Tamil literary history can speak to the present of uh, someone in, in a way that helps him to kind of reimagine, re-see the conditions in which he finds himself in. So I'll also read a little bit from what Chirin's far essay says. And he says, begins by Shulman's translation from Excellent Landscapes, takes us to the moment of separation, anguish, and quintessential dilemma of whether to leave behind a beloved because of circumstances be beyond one's control. Now that uh, situation of thinking of money, of someone going to find his fortune versus someone who is fleeing because of uh, the violent conditions in which he finds himself, they're really quite distinct. But there's something that you could say, oh, Chirin is reading the poem in his own context to see another meaning that's possible. It goes on in which he says that prompted by reading Shulman's translation, I began rereading other Sangam poems in my own context of exile, war, displacement, and modern Tamil poetry. Uh, and that, uh, you could say, oh, the idea of what the poem is speaking about, oh, the separation of lovers, uh, sometimes is by choice, thinking of money, but also sometimes by circumstances beyond one's control of uh, war, displacement, and exile, is part of how Nichiren is coming to the poem and what he's seeing in it. And he comes uh, in his really very beautiful kind of engaged, deep response to it. He responds always as a witness and a victim to war and rereading the Sangam poetry as helping us to understand you know, the sad facts of human life in the 21st century. And he comes back to the metaphor uh, that is at the end of the poem uh, about the, the unbaked clay pot dissolving in rain. 
with like a really striking uh, understanding of what it means. And the, there's kind of both ends quality that you were referring to before, Raj, of that uh, something that's happening that is bleak and un unwanted, but also in the middle of that, finding some other possibility. So what he uh, concludes his own essay in which he says, the unbaked clay pot dissolving in the rain creates a messy, muddy body of water. And in Canada, as the poem I quoted in the beginning testifies, red earth and pouring rain is the only body of water that no Tamils, Tamil Canadians or Canadian Tamils would go to. But how this ancient Sangam poem creates like a new interior land landscape for people in the, uh, in the Tamil diaspora or any human in diaspora. What shares with us shapes and captures the nuances of transnational Tamil identities, politics, and po uh, and poetics in a, in a very pertinent question that he leaves uh, a sense of th this is open ended. The, the the image of the unbaked clay dissolving in the rain is something that we have to enter into into the future, discovering both the bleakness of the image of the the muddy messiness of it, but also the happiness that is to be discovered there as well. Oh, beautiful. So here's a, 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 my questions are typically meant to be generative more than uh, to, to elicit anything exhaustive, but should near readers uh, seek far readers or vice versa? Mm -hmm. Should they be consulting each other? Do they need to? Should they? Can they? And if you don't want to be on the hook, what do some of your respondents say? <laughs> uh let me say two things. One, I'll just say, speaking autobiography, autobiographically, and I find myself at this point in my life really valuing what I learn from listening to people when I give up what I call the expert card, and which I allow myself to be educated by people who are coming to uh, something that I think I know well. And what they show me that they're able to see in it, I realize, oh, uh, you know, I've done something to myself in terms of aspiring to become an expert on something in which then I'm not able to see other kinds of things. It also gives me a certain kinds of pleasure that, to remember that so if I talk say, about singular literature in Sri Lanka, that when I'm in the room speaking, I know the least of everyone in the room. Uh, that all the other like Sri Lankan scholars know a lot more than I do, but I'm the one who is speaking. And at the end of one of my talks, someone I've known since the 1980s came up to me and said, you know, the great thing about listening to you is that you remind us that in even the most basic things, there's stuff worth thinking about. And so then I thought, oh, that is uh, like a, a useful reminder for all of us who are aspiring to become near readers. The other thing I just wanted to add that it was a surprise to me and I think you all at the same time, uh, how hard it was for people who wanted to see themselves in the role of an expert reader to take up the guise of a far reader. Mm -hmm. uh, and that that was like a, a learning experience for everyone who like stuck with it. Uh, lots of people that we asked, they came back and they said, I just can't do it. Uh, that was a surprise. Uh, but then also, like, just seeing, like, the, the possibilities that were opened up to expert readers when they tried to engage something as a far reader, like they would pick up any other translation for, to read for, for pleasure. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a great gift to scholarship. Mm 
to say that uh, kind of emotional space, but uh, space of perceiving is one that we always want to go back to, to for nourishment, because that's why you say we got into what we're doing, because there was something there that we just tasted that we said, oh, I really want to have more of this. You know, in relation to what uh, what we just read, the this uh, Sangam poem, it's very interesting that Cheran, I mean, he's the far reader, but he's a Tamil speaker and he's a Tamil poet and he knows Sangam poetry. It's not as if this literature were foreign to him, but he read it as a far reader. And uh, it creates a kind of a particularly unusual, complex uh, relationship, which comes through very clearly in his response. That's right. But I, I think it's really important that what Chirin like shares is that how the Sangam poetry can speak to 21st century canon yeah. yeah. uh, and to open up possibilities in 21st century Canada like it was able to do in you know pre-modern India. I'll give you I'll give you another example. Uh, one of the one of the more amazing uh, far responses in the book is by Sheldon Pollock, who is one of the greatest Indologists of our times. And but we gave him a piece of translation from Tamil, from the Nala and the Manti story in Tamil. Uh, that is a language he does not read, and asked him to respond to it as a as a far reader. And what what Paul did is he, and I think that's something we need to learn how to emulate. He pretended as a reader that he doesn't know the first thing about Indic literature, about its conventions, about its uh, metaphors, about its similes, about its uh, way of portrayal, female and male characters, and so on. And he started to estrange all of this. Of course, through the guise of, a, uh, of the pretense, you can see his immense eridicity, but erudition, but, but, but the, but the, the, but if we try to do so, just as just as Charlie said, and we give up the the expert card, we learn a lot, and and I think that's a that's a great example. We learn about the text, and we learn about ourselves, and we learn about the act of reading, which is the topic of Pollock's uh, uh, essay. There, all of your comments uh, resonate so um, so deeply. Much of my teaching these days um, is continuing studies teaching. Um, the Oxford Center for Hindu Studies and other platforms. I have an online school I teach at a platform called Yogic Studies. And um, uh, adult lifelong learners, some of whom are seekers, some of whom not, some more intellectual bent, some of whom are both, they, you know, I had the opportunity, uh, let's put it this way, this translation project came out of a course where we did a close reading of the Devi Mahatmya at Yogic Studies. And intelligent, interested um adults engaging the text ask these questions that that force you to think in ways that you hadn't conceived before and vice versa um it, it's it's there there is there there is the toggling between the the specificity of of the of of the proximal view of the specialist and the more generals maybe even humanistic view of an individual resonating with the text just by virtue of it being a, you know, a text written by humans about what it means to be human on some level. Toggling between those two, I think, is can be so rich. Um, I was approached recently to do um, 
an article in a collected volume on Jung's shadow concept. Uh, could you say something about the, the Hindu world, you know, you know, the teeny tiny thing called the Hindu world or, or Indian myth? And I, I thought, well, on the one hand, that might be round holes and square pegs or might be anachronistic but on the other hand i've always read the opening episode of devi mahamya as these demons coming out of vishnu's unconscious state they're demons of his unconscious mm. vishnu's asleep that's where the demons come from his, his earwax and so um uh, it obviously i'm I, i'm not positing that the ancient indians necessarily had the same view of the human psyche that we do now um, nor am I precluding the possibility that those insights are there unconsciously, irrespective mm. of what, what's consciously known about the psyche. But I think there's great profundity and power in reading these ancient texts through what matters to us at present. And, uh, you know, I'm not convinced that that's not exactly the, the, the function of such texts. And that's what makes them classic in that folks can read them without the specificity of the historical knowledge or the, the technical knowledge or the ritual knowledge. And, and they still say something to, 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 to us across generations and, and geography. Um, Can I add one uh, thing that building on what Yigal just said, that maybe the artificial construct that we have of near and far readers is a little bit misleading in the sense that someone like Sheldon Pollock that you all just referred to, we were asking people who are in one sense already experts in one area of South Asian literature to quote unquote, pretend not to be an expert in another area and to see what happens when, and that kind of position, you know, is like another like audience for the volume of like offering to, other people who know a lot about South Asian literature to just say, can you get back to places of pleasure uh, in terms of uh, who you are as a scholar? And one of the, my favorites is Andrew Ollett, uh, his own essay on uh, uh, the selection from a Tamil work of 100 Measures of Time. Uh, and he opens up and he says, I admit to being at a complete loss when I first tried to respond to these verses from a hundred measures of time. And that he says uh, that uh, it just didn't like speak to him at all. But then he goes on in which he says that, uh, that when he like, stops trying to imagine himself as the ideal reader of the text and imagine himself as a cantankerous Sanskrit scholar of my own creation, <laughs> that uh, Nam Alvar suddenly opened up to me as if uh, to scoldingly remind me that the person reading his poem was not prior to imagination, but constituted by it. Mm. And that kind of phrase, that insight, that you know, everyone who is reading the translations that is constituted by the imagination that's in the text, uh, that the text is kind of creating, is, I think, like a scholarly lesson as well as offering for people who are just picking these up to say, I want to try something new. Very rich insights indeed to be found in this work about the beauty of Sanskrit narrative and um, really the ways in which we read, how we read, why we read, what, what does reading entail? Um, was there anything that um, there may have been much that struck you in a sense, but without lead, without offering too much of a leading question was there anything that stayed with you or surprised you about this process 
one of the uh, things that surprised me looking back, the, the image that comes to my mind on the question is the, the late German novelist uh, Siebold. Someone once asked him, what's the method that he used to prepare for the way that he uh, put his books together? And he said, it's like a hunting dog that is zigzagging all over the field, uh, going in every which way, every direction, but always finds what it's looking for. And I think that if I look back at the process, uh, what's stuck with me is how much zigzagging, going back and forth, going to David, like saying, can you do this? Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, testing his patience at times. Uh, but at the end, I just say, we found what we were looking for, even though if I would say at the beginning, uh, I would say, oh, what we were looking for at the beginning is what, what is not what we found. And what we found, I'm really happy that we found it. That's beautiful. I really like the the image, actually, uh, of of uh, in this case the wild dog, going back and forth, but finding either by virtue of scent or instinct, finding what it is. It's so similar when one is reading a text, um, or even secondary scholarship. Something just comes out at you in living color. Everything else is in black and white for a moment. And that idea, it just, it, it's saying, look at me, look at me, look at me. And more often than not, there's a reason why you have that experience. Um, is there anything else about the work that you wanted to touch on today before we close? Uh, I'll just say, I'll just say one more thing. It's a, it's a very unusual and strange book project. And it's uh, uh, not like any other book that any of us has done or plans to do in the future. In fact, I think uh, we uh, we had an idea. We I think we had the title, sensitive reading, and we knew it was supposed to be centered around translations by David. But we really didn't have a concept for this book. We didn't know exactly what it would look like. And even after we had the translations, and even after we negotiated with uh, such a wonderful group of, of responders near and far, uh, some 30 uh, plus of them, uh, and, and explained this strange concept to them, even when we got all the materials back, the structure of how, what to put together with what wasn't clear, and suddenly this book emerged. I mean, when, when you speak of a surprise, we had no idea what we were entering. We had no idea what the book would look like. And if, in fact, we will have a book, and suddenly we have a book that, uh, on the one hand, is a total surprise. We, we, we couldn't anticipate any of it. And on the other hand, we were, it's what we were looking for, as, as Charles said. Well, I have to say, I want to say that, you know, for me, as the... Um, the far reader, you might say. <laughs> For me, I mean, the receiving this book and the whole and getting to read to know it to see what people wrote, it was an, an amazingly moving experience. You know, to see the depth of the engagement that uh, these readers took, and to see how they read poems or pieces of text that I had known from my own experience, but suddenly saw in a new light through their eyes. And, uh, you know, I'm just enormously uh, grateful to these two editors for this amazing gift that they've given. 
One of the authors of a far essay, Sonam Katru, has the title, like the, the witty title for his essay, What's Gained in Translation. <laughs> and I, I myself think that uh, that could be something of a description of the whole volume. And uh, one of the things that's gained in translation is uh, pleasure. And uh, reading through other people's eyes and what they see and the pleasure that they're sharing. And also like the kind of human qualities of affection for David that came through throughout the book. I would say all of that is, you know, one of the things, you know, that you know, things are gained in translation. And uh, we should get over the kind of naive idea of that trans something is always lost in translation. It may be true, but important things are gained in translation. Well, what comes to mind is an analogy that I use in teaching at times, but I think is particularly apropos this project, that these, these um, translations in these works, they're indeed gems, and they function like gems. And, and the luster of gems is, is magnified by its tilting and it's viewing from different perspectives mm. and 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 it, it, the translation enterprise just takes that to a whole new level because it opens up the 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 perspectives uh, on the works and, and the ways in which we can see them um this has been um it really and truly a, a, an enjoyable i'll say that first because of the nature of the work and, <laughs> and a provocative work methodologically and, and in terms of its its uh its thinking about and thinking along the act of translation and and, and reading in any language and uh, just uh, serendipitously quite timely for um articulating in the introduction to this translation what it is i've hoped to do <laughs> in the translation so um thank you very much for appearing on the podcast today it's been it's been an honor speaking to all of you thank you thank you thank you so much Raj. Yeah. For those of you listening, we've been speaking with Dr. Siegel Bronner, uh, uh, Charles Hallisey, and David Schulman on a uh, fantastic new open access publication, uh, Sensitive Reading, The Pleasures of South Asian Literature and Translation, University of California Press. The link is in the podcast notes. Until next time, keep well, keep listening, keep reading, and keep enjoying what you're reading. Take care.